All right, I'm going to ask you to do something for me as we start this morning. I'm going to ask you to engage your imaginations, all right? Not, not just boundlessly, I'm going to direct your imaginations, but I want you to engage your imaginations at this point. So if you need to close your eyes to do this, go ahead, and I'll make sure you wake up when I'm done. But this is what I want you to do. I want you to picture yourself in a, in a situation, an environment that most of you are familiar with, with. I want you to put yourself in your imagination in the driver's seat of your car. Okay, got it? Put yourself there. You're in the driver's seat of your car. You approach an intersection. The light has just turned red. I know some of you are going, gun it, but that's not the case in here. You roll to a stop in the left lane of the two lanes that are headed in the direction you are going. On the other side of the intersection, the two lanes merge into one. You sit patiently at the stoplight, surfing the radio stations to find that perfect song for your perfect day. Cars arrive at the intersection behind you, forming the patient queue, constructed in the Minnesota nice fashion that we have become accustomed to. All the merging happened about two blocks ago. But then, he arrives. That young guy with the attitude. That guy who thinks that the right lane is actually a legitimate place to line up, in spite of the obvious fact that there will soon be no right lane. So he's really in the wrong lane, and you know it. He thinks he's going to leave you behind at that intersection, inhaling the exhaust from the horsepower-laden, earth-shaking turbo engine in his Ford Fusion. (laughs) But you know better. His pathetic excuse for a car is no match for your driving prowess and your sweet four-cylinder Honda. You tighten the grip on your bovine-patterned fuzzy steering wheel cover. It's on. You will not be taken down this day. As you glance in the rearview mirror to make sure the drivers behind you are at ease, knowing that you will protect their right and yours to the proper lane, the light changes, and you see out of the corner of your eye the enemy launching his craft into the intersection. You panic. You react by driving the accelerator pedal deep into your Looney Tunes-themed floor mat. But it's too late. You've lost. It's over. Decency has been delivered another crushing blow. The hero has become the goat. You drive on in a cloudy state of shame and fury. Somehow, the earth continues turning. Another day, Ford Fusion fiend. Another day. Okay, now you know that a lot of you can relate to that. You know that. You get to that intersection, and and that's your reaction. Nobody's going to get in front of you. Even if they pulled up in that right lane legitimately, they're not going to get in front of you, because you were first to that intersection, and you deserve that lane. And in some way, we believe that we have the right to be first, at least some of the time. That's a normal part of the human experience, isn't it? Why should we let somebody else beat us at anything? And this is not a learned behavior. It's in our nature to want to be first. And since it's in our nature, we can see evidence of it very early on. 
when Liam and Jude are our five-year-old boys, and Liam's six now, when they were four, we had to teach them the difference between losing at something and being a loser. They thought it was pretty much the same thing, <clears throat> but it starts even earlier than that. Uh, the other day, our two-year-old, Asher, was playing floor hockey with Jude in the living room, and uh, now before you decide as parents that you will never let your kids play with the pastor's kids, I want you to hear me out. <laughs> Our living room is part of the one big room that makes up the ground level floor of our house. Uh, we do not have a family room. We don't have a basement. It's just one room. So please remember that when your kids hear from ours that they get to play hockey in the living room. So Jude's at one end of the room and Asher's at the other. And at one point Jude passes the ball to Asher and it gets by him. Behind Asher, coming out of the kitchen, which is Asher's goal, into the living room is Grandma. The ball rolls to Grandma, and she stops to pick it up and return it to Asher. Asher turns around, sees that Grandma has the ball, and he gives her the look. And I know this look. I played hockey growing up, but I've never seen that look on a two-year-old's face until this past week. It's the look that says, do you want to drop the gloves right now? Asher was so serious about dominating this little game of floor hockey that he's willing to fight his grandma if she gets in the way. (laughs) What's wrong with us? What is this insane need to win that's wired into us? Now, Jesus never had to deal with this, did he? (laughs) Well, certainly not in his own desires and will. That sinful nature did not control him like it controls us so much of the time. He fought the same temptations that we do, but he overcame every single one of them. What he had to deal with was those around him. And in that dealing, he passed on to us a lot of guidance that we need for us to deal with our own shortcomings in this area. Many of these lessons had to be taught first to his disciples, to his followers. Now, there were some very obvious themes in the teaching of Jesus as we look back at his ministry. And we're going to look at one of those themes today. Uh, This is something very familiar to us, and you'll know what I'm talking about as soon as I start reading the first passage. But until I'm confident that I've mastered this lesson in my own life, and I know that you have as well, we're going to go back to this every once in a while. And this theme is one that I believe has tremendous potential in the way that we impact those around us. And I'll end the message today by talking about that potential. So turn with me in the great book to Mark chapter 10. We're going to read uh, this story and several passages together. If you do not have a Bible with you today, um, you're going to need one. You're going to want to have one to follow along. Just shoot your hand up, and our ushers will bring you one if you forgot yours. Um, Some days, I'm going to have all our scripture up on the screen. That'll just happen. Days like today, I have a lot of scripture that we're going to go through. We're going to jump all over the place, and um, you're going to want to have one there. It's just too much to put up on the screen. The other thing that I really like about having it in your hands is that you have it in your hands. You have the word of God in your lap. And here we are meeting together to learn from the word of God. It's nice to just touch the thing and realize it's right there. This is God's gift to us, and there it is. So turn to Mark chapter 10. We're going to read from verse 35 to 45. Mark 10 beginning at verse 35, and this is what it says. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said. No, that's not the, the script up on the screen, by the way. 
Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now, this is one of those scenarios where you've heard this question. Somebody comes up to you and says, okay, I have to ask you to do something for me, but you've got to promise to say yes. This is what they're doing to Jesus, okay? This is his disciples. We want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. And they replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to, be, to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, not only is this a ridiculous request, it's one made after, after this issue should have been resolved. They'd been there before, uh, back in Mark chapter 9. Back up to Mark chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 33 to 35. Those ones are on the screen right now, so we'll keep those ones up there. But this is what it says in Mark chapter 9, verses 33 to 35. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. And then I love what Jesus did. He brings a child over and takes the child in his arms. Now this happened at Peter's house. And so this may actually have been one of Peter's kids that he did this with. Uh, He was likely a toddler, and Jesus used the child as an example, talking as he did in other places in the Word, about receiving the simple, humble faith of children and learning from that. And it's a very good thing that he didn't use Asher as his example. And that would have gone real well (laughs) to see him ready to go with the creator of the universe. (laughs) So in spite of that great lesson, the disciples go on and they press Jesus about, many, about another follower of Jesus who was casting out demons in Jesus' name. And they had told this guy to stop because he was not one of them. They had to be the first, the best, the most important. Now why would Jesus have chosen such self-centered, selfish men to be his followers, his disciples, those who would represent him after he left? Well, I think he chose them because they represent us well. Some of us struggle with this more than others. Some of them struggled with this more than others. The other ten disciples got on James and John's case for asking Jesus to do this for him. The desire to be first, to be better, to achieve status is real, and so Jesus had to break it down for them. And in his teaching during his ministry with the disciples, he did just that. 
there were three statements among many that he made to them on this subject, and I want to look at those three this morning. And the first statement is this. Forget what you know. Forget what you know. Jesus came to turn the values of this world upside down. Listen to some of the statements that he made during his ministry. Matthew 20, 16, the last will be first and the first will be last. Matthew 10, 39, whoever finds his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Matthew 23, 12, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Matthew 19, 30, but many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. Mark 10, 31, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Luke 9, 48, for he who is least among you all, he is the greatest. And there were more of these in his teaching, scattered throughout. Now back then they had the same definitions of success and achievement that we do. They had the great athletic games of their times, and the one who crossed the finish line first won. That's the way it was. First was first, last was last. There was no blurring of that distinction. Awards were given to those who finished first. But what Jesus was saying that they and we now were going to have to change the way that they saw life. And that would take some work. It was a confusing principle to them and Jesus went to great lengths to show them what he meant because he wanted to get in their heads. Paul tells us in Romans 12, 12 that we need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We need a new way to think, which means that we have to work to get past what we used to think. That sinful nature sees things in its own particular way. And that way needs to be forsaken. It needs to be pushed out so that Christ can carry out the work of the new covenant in us. Do you know what that work includes? Hebrews 8 verse 10 talks about it. It says, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. He wants to put this new way of thinking, this new point of reference in our minds to replace the old way. We can see what the disciples were failing to see for so long at the time of Christ. Why? Because we have the spirit of the living God inside of us who guides us into all truth. And that truth includes this principle of the first being last and the last first. The disciples may have struggled to understand that principle at the time, but their struggle lives on to this day, and that in itself still has an impact. Let me show you what I mean. Cambridge University in England has a long tradition of referring to its dozen lowest-ranked undergraduates as the Twelve Apostles. They get this concept, they're using this concept that the last shall be first, carried on there it's a tough concept for us to grasp especially if you have some level of success in life Um, humility gets harder to learn if you're climbing your way to the top but it's not impossible I recently went to Bethel University to hear a speaker named Erwin McManus Uh, he's a pastor of the Mosaic Church in California he's a great author and visionary and he's the winner of the best Super Bowl commercial this past February He's the one who created it. And now just hang on, your pastor might get into that business too. Now Irwin knows what it is to win, to be first. Recently his staff came to him to report that his name now appeared on the list of the top 20 most powerful Christians in the world. 
Now, what would your response be to that? I know mine. My initial response would be, cool. I'm going to put that on my resume for sure. But immediately, his staff came to him and made a statement to him in all seriousness that reflects the possibility of understanding this principle. Right away, they said, Erwin, we've got to get you off that list. And that's exactly what they did. He disappeared for a while, got out of the public eye, stepped away because of what it was becoming. So is success a failure then? No. No. There's a a book that came out a while back called Good to Great, written by uh, author Jim Collins that details what it takes to make a good company turn great in terms of profitability. And he studied the leadership styles of some of the most successful CEOs in the business world, and then he compared their personalities to the personalities of some high-profile celebrities. We were surprised, shocked really, writes Collins, to discover the type of leadership required for turning a good company into a great one. Compared to high-profile leaders with big personalities who make headlines and become celebrities, the good-to-great leaders seem to have come from Mars. Self-effacing, quiet, reserved, even shy, these leaders are a paradoxical blend of personal humility and professional will. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted, Jesus taught. The world is going to have to forget what it knew and be ready to receive a new way of thinking. Jesus didn't deny the fact that this new idea, this new way, came with a reward. But they were going to need to forget about that as well. And the reward is spelled out in Matthew chapter 19. Turn to Matthew 19, starting at verse 27 right now. Matthew 19. We're going to read from verse 27 to 30. Okay, Matthew 19, starting at verse 27. Peter answered him, We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne... You who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But he doesn't stop there. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. And so following Jesus in this new way could come with its rewards. It would come with its rewards. They were being promised that they would rule when Christ returns and rules over the earth. They would rule with him. That had to get them excited. But then immediately, Jesus throws in that confusing closing statement. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. And here we go again with that reversal of the natural order What does that mean, first, last, last, first? And so Jesus uses a teaching tool that he used many times in his ministry, and we'll see many more of these this summer. Uh, Jesus tells a parable. And I want to teach you some things about parables as we go through the summer series. Uh, Many of us have believed for a long time that Jesus used parables to teach simple truths to simple people. This is quite simply not true. It's not Why then would Jesus take his disciples aside at times 
to explain the parables to them. Okay, they weren't dumb. The people in that time and place weren't dumb. They were resilient, wise, witty people who grasped simple truths quickly. For that reason, Jesus taught using parables. In these parables were jewels of truth that would take some mining to get to. And he wanted people to work for their enlightenment. With the disciples, he wanted to equip them to carry on the work that he started. And so he short-tracked them into understanding by explaining them to him, to them. Now remember that this is also pre-Holy Spirit, our truth guide that we have. So Jesus has just told them about their reward, the seats on the 12 thrones. But to keep things in perspective, Christ's new mind-altering perspective, he tells them this parable. And it's found in Matthew chapter 20, right after that. Matthew 20, beginning at verse 1. And we're going to read the first 16 verses. This is the parable that he tells. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About the third hour, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. About the 11th hour, about 5 o'clock in the evening, an hour before it's going to get dark, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about the 11th hour came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, Friend, I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am so generous? And then here it is again. So the last will be first, and the first will be last. God's grace is delivered equally to those who receive him. And that is not a demonstration of God's cheap nature. It's a demonstration of his generosity. The thief who hung next to, the, to Jesus on the cross got Jesus in paradise just like I get Jesus in paradise. Even though I will prayerfully work in ministry my whole life. It's a new concept this Jesus brings with him. A new way, a new covenant. And along with forgetting what we know about our kingdom and learning to accept his kingdom, we also need to forget about that reward that's God's business, and as the parable states, doesn't he have the right to do what he wants with his reward? I trust his perspective. I trust his holiness. I trust his justice. Forget what you know, forget the reward, and forget everything but Christ. Forget everything but Christ. 
couple of weeks ago, we looked at the meaning of the word follow and discovered that Jesus was talking about a companionship, not the idea of following at a distance. He calls us to walk his road with him as his companions, not to admire his humility, not to act humble like him, but to walk the road of humility with him, to take on his yoke, to allow him to transform us by renewing our minds. And this is going to require some closeness. It's going to require some time spent with Jesus. And during his ministry, Jesus spoke into an event in a way that made this about as clear as it could get. So go to Luke chapter 10 now. Luke 10. And to verse 38. Luke 10, 38. We're going to read from verse 38 to 42. Luke 10, beginning at verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. So now this last shall be first principle is being given more and more clarity as we go along here. Jesus essentially says to Martha, forget everything but me. You can serve me all day, every day, but that won't produce in you what I desire it to. Having the mind of Christ means forgetting everything but Christ. We can take what we know about the last shall be first principle and apply it to the way that we live our lives. We can serve in many ways and we should serve in many ways. Um, you want to serve? We're out, of, we're out of office volunteers here at the church right now. We need someone to step in and do that. Uh, if you can give a few hours in a week to come and help out at the office, please contact our office and let us know. We're always looking for people to serve, and we've got a great need right now. We are to be servants, but it does not begin and end with our behavior. It begins and ends with Christ and his spirit transforming us from the inside out. That's why we follow the way that we're called to follow. That's why we take on his yoke and don't just mimic his actions. The last shall be first, and being humble to be exalted are principles that Christ wants to demonstrate through us, not to have us demonstrate for him. Can we forget about everything but Christ? Can we get to the point where the fragrance of Christ just flows from within us? That is so much more meaningful than a random act of service, but again, we're not to quit serving because we're not sure if it's us doing it or if it's Christ doing it through us. His yoke is available right now. Right now. He will lead us along that road of service and humility if we just ask him in sincerity to do that for us, to do that in and through us. I want to conclude this morning with this one thought. I want us to consider the timing of Jesus' teaching on this principle. We can learn something from his timing on this. Uh, Our text from Matthew 19 points to this, so go back there now to Matthew 19, verse 27, and we're not gonna read it again, but I want you to see what's happening around this again. Go to Matthew 19, verse 27. Verse 27. 
And this is where Jesus tells his disciples about the reward and then tells them the parable that points to forgetting about that reward. Back up in chapter 19 to verse 23 in your Bible. Back up to verse 23. This is the story of the rich young man who was sad when Jesus told him that he needed to sell all his possessions and give it to the poor. So the discussion of the first being last and the last first was a response to what was going on around him. When James and John asked to sit at Christ's right and left, Jesus responded by teaching this principle. When the disciples were arguing on the road about who was the greatest, Jesus responded by teaching them about this principle. Now let's move in our minds to the week leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus entered Jerusalem riding on a donkey and the people hailed him as king. They looked to him to rule, to save them from their circumstances by taking control and restoring the dominance of the Jewish nation. So Jesus' disciples could see the power mounting There were more and more people following Jesus and and now they were hailing him as their king. They could see Jesus surging his way to the front. But Jesus spoke to them of his impending death. And then rather than demonstrate his power, Jesus demonstrated his love for his disciples. See, Jesus had in him a a reflex that created these responses. The The demonstrations of and lessons about this first shall be last principle were not merely random lessons. They were responses to the world around him. So how's your reflex to the world around you? And we all know what this tool up on the screen is. I'm still not sure why it's so important for a doctor to whack you in the knee with one of these. But the goal of this tool is to produce a response. An immediate response to this is a good thing. How do you, how do I react, respond when the world around us whacks us in the knee? If you considered the opportunities that we're presented with all the time regarding this principle, people all around us talk and act just like those disciples who wanted to be first, looking for the reward. They are ripe for a demonstration of this new way of thinking. They're ready to see servanthood, love, humility modeled by those who know this new mindset that Christ ushered in. And Christ is ready to demonstrate that through you and through me. We use the term cat-like reflexes. How are your Christ-like reflexes? This is one of the effective ways that Christ wants us to respond to the world's viewpoint. This is one area in which as we allow our minds to be transformed, God will use us to model kingdom thinking, the mind of Christ. What an opportunity. Are we gonna be ready to respond to this? The expectations were there. Jesus had been hailed as king. The people were ready to follow him to his throne and see him take control. But in response... Before dinner with his disciples one evening, Jesus gets up from the table and he does something that shakes them to the very core. And I want you to enter into that story visually right now. Just allow yourself to be taken in by the words of the scriptures that you're gonna see up on the screen. 
by the images that will accompany them. Just allow yourself to enter in and see how Jesus responded again. You know this story, but see again how he responded to the world around him and its mindset. And then I'll come back up here and close our time together.
said to his disciples, you're not going to understand what I'm doing here. They were having a hard time getting it. But then he finished the work that he came to do. And now we do understand. The way in which Jesus responded to the world around him during his ministry is the very same way that he wants to use us to respond to the world around us. So we gotta come to terms with this idea of allowing Christ to live through us. We've gotta be praying daily, God, renew my mind. Transform me into the person that you want me to be. The impact that we can have on this community, on this world, is limitless if we allow Christ to work through us to demonstrate some of these concepts that may be tough to grasp if all we ever do is talk about it. So we've got to live it. And that's my prayer for every one of us this morning. Let's pray as we close. Father, I want to thank you first for your son, Jesus Christ. He had everything. Infinite power, infinite wisdom, everything at his fingertips. And instead of demonstrating that, he demonstrated this new idea for us. And as he continues to touch our lives, we, we understand why. So Father, I pray that this morning we would just open ourselves up to be used by you in this way. Our country needs so badly to be introduced to this concept that the first will be last and the last will be first. And that they really do need to forget everything but you. And so I ask that you would use us in this. Make this our our mission, our purpose to go out and be your reflex in this world. Help us to be aware when a demonstration or when an opportunity is, is staring us right in the face and we have a chance to speak truth, we have a chance to demonstrate truth. Help us to find the courage not to shy away from that, not to try and get into a discussion, but to live it right there. To draw people into an understanding of who you are and, and how revolutionary your way of thinking is. Lord Jesus, renew our minds. We offer them to you to be transformed, to become vessels through which you will speak and act, through which you will be yourself to the world around us. We wanna be your ambassadors here on this earth. Let that happen in our lives, Lord, individually and as a church. Let that be who we are. Thank you for your mercy and grace, for lowering yourself so that we could be saved. We love you for all that you've done for us, and we commit ourselves to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.